0: This is the third Sunday of Easter. As we now move through the great 50 days, the readings in the Biblical Witness are going to continue now and maybe next week to focus on resurrection appearances and uh, the disciples' reaction to the risen Christ. And then we will move to a a series of readings that are preparing the people of God for Jesus to ascend into heaven and for us now to constitute being God's people in the world. And so, reading the epistle for today from 1 John and the Gospel from Luke, I thought it might be a good thing to speak about two issues that are raised in each of these readings. One is sin... And the other one is the risen Jesus and how he is portrayed and seen in the various accounts of him in a post-resurrection setting, to use the technical biblical scholarly term. But before that, I always think we're now in the third Sunday of Easter, and as you know, because I love the word so much, we may need to do a little recapitulation summarizing uh, the season of Easter, why it is so important, what are the things in this season that you can take with you and constitute part of your personal prayer and understanding of the way Christian people have seen Easter as the centerpiece of their faith and belief, and what are the themes? that are the focus of the great 50 days and, in fact, animate the whole of the Christian liturgical year. And you and I are Episcopalians, and that means that we believe our public prayer and worship create or, or are the place to begin for what it is we believe about the deep things of Christian faith and belief. We have the Latin maxim lex arandi, lex credendi, the law of prayer is the law of belief. And so from ancient times, the church in England always understood that the public prayer and worship of the church informed everything else. In fact, it came first. And while it's on my mind, I should mention again what I said on Easter, something that we also hold to be true, and that is that the church is prior to the scriptures. The church is prior to the scriptures, which means that the biblical witness flowed out of the community of faith. We didn't have all of a sudden the Bible, and then we came to St. Luke's downtown Jerusalem and started to hold services from the Book of Common Prayer. Neither of those things happened initially, but what happened first was we got together and prayed, and were faithful to the commands of the Savior it will now be uh, given to us or recapitulated in the biblical witness. So, the ground zero in the worship life of the church is the great vigil of Easter. And the themes that we receive from that liturgy, its fourfold shape, inform now how we understand the Christian faith in life as we seek to live it and to be faithful and to know God's will and purpose for us. So it provides us with some spiritual content and it also will give up to us three important theological ideas which I'll mention in a minute that are central to how we see God's action in our lives as a community and in each of our lives personally. The first part of the great vigil of Easter is something we call the service of light, and it's the lighting of the Paschal candle, the symbol of the risen Christ, the symbol of the presence of the light of Christ. It is born into a dark church, an ancient hymn is sung to the new light and the new fire and we then uh, bring in front of each of us the idea that God's illuminative processes are at present to us always, both corporately showing us the way, leading us like a light to shine in the darkness, and internally as a light that shows us our true self and gives us the strength and the stamina to see what it is we can do to be faithful to God's will and purposes for us and how now through this illuminative process we can help others come to some enlightenment with regard to how they understand their role in God's plan for the cosmos. The second part of the Great Vigil of Easter is a lengthy reading of Prophecies and other things from the Hebrew Bible, from what Christians call the Old Testament. And they're read for a couple of reasons. First of all, to remind the faithful that God has always been present and his faithful presence never wavers. And in spite of our own fickle nature, God remains faithful and that God's saving purposes have always been present in the world. And what the early Christians understood as they began to put together their forms of public worship and public prayer was that this history of salvation contained in it not only stories about the people of Israel and their journey to some form of enlightenment, their journey to understand their vocation in the world. It also had significance for those who followed Jesus, because in these readings they said, you know, if we'd have read them more carefully, we would have seen clearly that they were predictive of the coming of the definitive focus of the Divine Presence, Jesus Christ. And so, God's saving work has always been part of our self-understanding. And as we think and reflect on that, they said this means that we as the community of faith corporately are part of the history of salvation. But also, in our private prayer and in our own personal spiritual journeys we come to see that each of us individually and personally have a history that is part of the history of salvation. So each one of you counts in big and small ways and your story is part of the big story. The third part of the Great Vigil of Easter is the celebration of Baptism or the renewal of baptismal vows and actually the last two parts of the fourfold shape introduced to the community of faith in its worship the belief in the power of the sacramental life outward and visible signs of inward and spiritual graces and so we celebrate at the great vigil the two dominical sacraments which is the fancy way of describing what it was our Lord said to do in the Bible To baptize, and to do this in remembrance of me. Episcopalians have seven sacraments, and those seven sacraments flowed out of our common life together. But the two biblical sacraments, the two most important sacraments, are our focus for the great vigil of Easter. So baptism now becomes our initiation into the body of Christ. The renewal of our baptismal vows reminds us of our covenanted relationship with God and of the template that we can lay over our own spiritual life and development as we live and also an affirmation that sacramentally what Jesus Christ is by nature we become through adoption and grace at our baptism. And so now we share fully in the divine life and become the instrument of the Savior's work in the world. And when we come to part four, the celebration of the Holy Eucharist, we are celebrating that thing which gives each of us the sacramental strength, power, stamina, insight to be able to be God's people in the world on a weekly basis. So we are fed with the spiritual food of life, which enables each of us to have the strength and power to do this. Father Thomas Keating would say in the liturgical year, ground zero being the great vigil of Easter, and now radiating out through the whole of the Christian year, which is based on the life of Jesus and his earthly ministry, we see recapitulated and replicated all of the things that I have just described with their special emphases. And as we do that, there are three great theological ideas always present to us at each liturgy. And they are the light of God, the life of God, and the love of God. We understand the light of God as being the process of illumination which brings to each person wisdom. And the kind of wisdom that we're talking about is the practical wisdom that you and I develop as the cumulative response to meeting the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of each of us. I'm sorry to tell you that there are some people who don't learn from their experience. And my suggestion to you is don't have anything to do with them. (laughs) It is useless to try and help or work with unmotivated people. And all people in leadership struggle with this on a daily basis, as do people who wish to exercise leadership in families. So you need to make the decision about whether or not you're going to be held hostage to someone who does not learn from their experience or you're now going to move in a direction that will bring to you a greater and deeper maturity because of your willingness to do the hard work. The light of God, the wisdom of God, The life of God is the ability to be transformed by the Spirit which we receive at our baptism, or if you wish, find enhanced at our baptism, the Spirit understood as God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen you. Let me say a brief word to you about the power of the liturgy. You know, the clergy do try to pray the liturgy when they preside at the liturgy. But I also have to be frank with you that I get tired of listening to my colleagues bellyaching about their inability to pray at the liturgy because actually that's not our job. Our job is to preside at the liturgy. But, God being God, there are times when we do receive some gifts from the spirit God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us and in my own personal experience often what comes to me would in no way be categorized as religious but has deep spiritual import in terms of my ability to remain faithful so what I'm saying to you is you know I've said to you many many times about when I was a young priest And people would come out the door and say, or in an informal situation in my office, they'd say, You know what, Father Brewer? I don't know if the bread and the wine become Jesus' body and blood. I don't know whether any of this is true. I'm not so sure. I believe in that. All I know is that when I come and receive Holy Communion, I feel better. And, of course, when I was younger and more insufferable even than I am, now I used to think, this is simply unacceptable. You need to know the real da 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 Now I say, good! I hope you feel good. And you know what? That's the work of the Spirit. So if you're sitting in the pew and saying, you know, that's where I left that thing that I need to finish the report. Right? Right? Don't say, don't poo-poo this. It may have deep spiritual significance. I had a great help that was given to me just before Easter, both Pam Thistle and I did, our administrator, because I read an article in the Christian Century, which is the great long-time Protestant magazine in the United States, Reinhold Niebuhr and a group of other people, started it many, many, many years ago. And it was an article entitled, Administration as Pastoral Care. And I thought to myself, you know, uh, some of this stuff we, do, we think we're just spinning our wheel. it has deep spiritual significance, you know? Dotting the I's and crossing the T's. So if you come to Mass and you're sitting here and something comes to you that makes you more apt, more able, more uh, uh, in a position to rise to the responsibilities and the opportunities you have, that is also the work of the Spirit. I am not trivializing this. I am saying to you that we need to broaden our understanding of what it means when we believe that God is at work in each of our lives in big and small ways. In seminary and ascetical theology, which is a long time ago, Dean Parsons would refer to those things as the duties of state, get up and brush your teeth. I'm not kidding. So now the love of God is the ability, the third great theological idea, to be transformed and to know that being faithful and intentional, you can now look back on your circumstances and say, this is how I have made some progress. So none of us want to close the door on the past, as unhappy as it may be but it also informs us if we seek to be faithful in how now we're, we're going to be healthier than we were before. And that's the work of transformation, the love of God in Christ Jesus, God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness, which is the default position for all of us with regard to how we understand our relationship to God. First John has a famous, I think fairly famous, and, uh, introduction. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we shall be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him. For we will see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves even as he is pure. That's a testimony by the, by the author of us being made in God's image and when we touch our true self, we see him as he is. But the interesting part for me in this, because, you know, the hobby horse I've been riding, it is not as important what the Bible says as what the Bible means. And the author of First John, in fact, all of the Johannine literature file that term on ice, you never know when you'll be able to use it to impress your friends. Johannine means all the stuff that is attributed to John in the New Testament, the Gospel, the Epistles. For the Johannine writer, sin is not moral lapse. Let me say that again. sin is not moral lapse. Most of us, when we think of sin, or we hear uh, preachers talk about it, think of the sin understood as moral lapse. But for the Johannine writer, sin is disbelief or unbelief. So when he's talking today about this, it connects to the gospel we read last week about Thomas, who said he wasn't going to believe that Jesus rose from the dead until he could touch him and put his fingers in his hand and his wounds. And Jesus' mild rebuke to Thomas when he did this was, Do you believe because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have come to believe and have not seen And so the process of coming to believe means that you and I, in some ways, have to struggle against the overweening self-centeredness and cynicism of the age in which we live. You know, for some people, they believe, and certainly in academic circles, in a way that I believe has become caricatured, that we have to live in a perpetual state of skepticism about everything. And I meet a lot of people who have been deeply wounded by this. They can't trust. They don't know what they think they ought to, if they have integrity or sophisticated, they ought to be in some perpetual state of questioning, you know? Now we've said the tension that exists is that you and I ought to be able to bring to bear the full force and effect of our intellectual powers on the deep things of Christian faith and belief. But as Bishop James Pike, no conservative, said in an interview I heard many years ago, I think it's important for all of us to have an open mind, but it is important that it's closed at one end, otherwise everything is going to fall out. Right? And he was right. So it means that in some ways we need to understand that the overweening cynicism and skepticism that uh, people believe they need to have in order to be sophisticated is not what we're talking about. We're talking about thinking about ways that we live lives of not either or or both and. There are plural ways in the New Testament of understanding the meaning and the remedy for sin. And the biblical writers who, and the church who put together the canon of the New Testament, the books that are the authorized books of the New Testament, knew about these plural views and they were okay with it. It's only people subsequent to that who have become irritable or resentful because they're there, or have tried to trick you and fool you into believing that there are not plural views, there is one understanding of what this is. And as my Old Testament teacher at the house said many years ago, you know, you can believe that if you want to. In Luke's account of Jesus' resurrection, this particular one... We have a very physical Jesus. People could touch him and see his wounds, just like in John's Gospel. And he eats in front of them, after the resurrection. This is a fairly late description of the resurrection appearance in the writing of the New Testament. The earliest writing in the New Testament is Paul's letters. And so in 1 Corinthians, which we read on Easter Day and subsequent to this, Paul speaks about Jesus as risen, but his description of what he was like when he was risen is consistent with the thought world that constituted his missionary efforts. So Jesus is described by Paul as being raised in a spiritual body. All the New Testament writers, by the way, agree that Jesus rose from the dead and was seen by many people after he did. But what he looked like and how he was perceived by the various witnesses is not uniform. So Paul refers to Jesus' body as pneumaticon. In Greek, you know, we get pneumatic, we get pneumonia, spirit, pneuma. So, pneumaticon is the body of Jesus in Paul. By the time we get to Luke, it's psychicon, physical. This means not that we have now legendary occurrences being written about the risen Jesus, It means that we have an oral tradition that has developed speaking with the eyewitnesses, many of whom have had a different experience of the risen Jesus. And again, the people who put the canonical scriptures together knew this, and they were fine with it. It means that there are plural ways of understanding the resurrection, and early Christians always knew and believed that there was not one fixed way in which that ought to be done. Here's a quotation from a well-known New Testament scholar. There is not no biblical position on the resurrection, resurrected body. There are differing positions. Perhaps that is where we should leave it. What the two extremes have in common is their attempts to affirm the reality of the resurrection. Both Paul and Luke would agree that it is not a ghost or a phantom. What both lack is anthropology to explain resurrection, so they operate within the anthropological models they have. We, too, are probably in the same situation when dealing with the mystery. Remember when I use the word mystery, I don't mean something you don't know or is hidden only, but mystery it means certainly in the biblical world something that is infinitely knowable. So all of us are invited to live into the mystery of the resurrection and to draw and connect the dots about where in your own life you have experienced any species of resurrection at all. My former bishop for many years, William Swing, used to say to me and to my clerical colleagues, both privately and uh, in groups, that he believed in the resurrection because he has experienced the resurrection in his own life, and he has seen it among the people that he has served. And that can be my personal testimony to you as well. And I think that is why for those who heard and saw Jesus, that it did not appear to them incredible at all, even though it flew in the face of their complete, of their entire thought world, whether they were Jews or Greeks. So this week the assignment might be, see if you can find the signs of resurrection in your own life in the past or coming up in the future. Where have you experienced, in big and small ways, the renewing power of God? How have you seen at work God's light, God's life, and God's love? And how, by that process, are you going to be in a better position to commend to other people your greatest place of safety and assurance, and to be faithful to the Church's mission, which is to restore all people to unity with God and each other in Christ? Amen.